Hello, and welcome to the NTRUST Cybersecurity Institute podcast. I'm Samantha Maybe, and I'm your host for this special series that takes a closer look at all things post-quantum. In this episode, we'll be talking about some of the research that's gone into post-quantum cryptography and the state of standardization. I'm joined by the perfect person to have this conversation today. I'm joined by Brian Lamacchia, president of Farcaster Consulting Group and the former distinguished engineer for cryptography at Microsoft and lead of the security and cryptography team at Microsoft Research. Brian, thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Samantha. Thanks so much for having me. Pleasure to be here and speaking with you today. Yes, wonderful. I look forward to this conversation. So I'd like to start things off today by getting into the research side of things. Uh, You've been heavily involved in cryptographic research and development since the beginning of modern cryptography. Can you comment a bit on how the pace and intensity of academic post-quantum research compares with previous eras of cryptography? Sure, that's a great question and uh, and a great way to start. Um, You know, my career in cryptography basically started in the late 1980s when I was an undergraduate intern at AT AT&T Bell Labs and uh, started breaking knapsack crypto systems. So I've been kind of working on this for a long time. You know, the field of post-quantum cryptography really kind of dates to Peter Shor's invention of Shor's algorithm, his algorithm to... Uh, which is a quantum factoring algorithm. It's it's the first algorithm that, um, and, he, and he was at at t Bell Labs actually at the time. And what it is, is it's, a, it's an algorithm for factoring in polynomial time if you have access to a big enough quantum computer. Now in 1994, when, when Peter published that algorithm, we didn't have any inkling of if you'd be able to build a big enough quantum computer but what it demonstrated theoretically was a possibility that sometime in the future, um, the hard number theory problems that we had based all our public key algorithms on at that point, the RSA algorithm based on factoring, uh, digital signature algorithms based on the hardness of something called the discrete logarithm problem, and then elliptic curve variants of those, um, that they could fall and actually be solved pretty quickly if your adversary could build and operate big quantum computer. So that kind of kicked off interest in post-quantum or quantum-resistant public key algorithms. And that was a theoretical instance, I would say, or interest for, you know, the late 90s and through the 2000s, that first decade, where um, there was a lot of academic research in well, what are other hard number theory problems that we could base a crypto system on where we don't think a quantum computer helps you solve it quickly. And there have been a couple of different proposals over time. None of those turned into something that was seen as an instant replacement for RSA or elliptic curve because they didn't have the performance characteristics, the size, the speed, uh, the size of the ciphertext of the keys and the signatures. Um, So they was in the academic realm. The other thing that happened in the mid 2000s was we were really starting the transition from everything being based on RSA to elliptic curve. And that was kicked off by the US National Security Agency in 2005, announcing their standards for um, commercial cryptography that was gonna be used for up to what they call top secret information. And they call that sweet B, you'll hear that term. And they basically said in 2005, we want industry to start implementing uh, elliptic curve. So that was the focus of industry. Academic research was continuing. 
And then 10 years later, what really changed things in the academic research side, we had a goal because the NSA came back again in August of 2015 and said, hey, by the way, you know how we told you to go to elliptic curve 10 years ago? Well, now we're going to tell you to go move to a new post-quantum algorithm because we're worried about the progress that's been made in quantum computers over the last 10 years and actually realizing them. So that kicked off a different wave because once NSA started that, that led to, and I think we'll talk about this in a bit, a standardization effort started by the US National Institute of Standards and Technology. And that changed what was purely an academic interest into an academic field that now had standardization competitions in front of it and a targeted transition that was happening. So you can look and find academic papers on algorithms that we believe are quantum resistant going back to the late 90s. But the real urgency to try to realize these and make efficient implementations and really looking at the performance characteristics was in my view really kicked off by that that NSA announcement in August of 2015. Yeah, it certainly feels more real with the recent government action and, yes. and eyes on it. So <laughs> could you give a scientist to layman translation of what makes post-quantum crypto more complicated than previous generations of crypto? And how does that translate into public trust in the algorithms and ultimately to deployment timelines? Sure. Um, so all of the public key cryptographic algorithms that we use today are based on hard problems in number theory. This is a field of pure mathematics where there are problems that we believe are generally are easy to compute one way but hard to invert. Factoring is the classic example of this. The RSA algorithm um, was is built on the difficulty of of factoring products of two large prime numbers. So if you have an RSA secret, you know that factorization, but an adversary who's trying to break it needs to be able to factor it. The post-quantum schemes that are being looked at now are based on other hard problems that are that are still in the from number theory but are often a little bit more difficult to uh explain and wrap your head around than just how easier is it to factor a product of two prime numbers into its constituent components um and some of those problems are still quite old some of them are newer now uh, one of the issues with trust and this is a really important point the way in which we build and gain trust in a cryptographic algorithm, frankly, is by trying to attack it over time and not being successful at attacking it. So if you look at factoring, for example, there were a series of improvements made in how quickly we could factor, never, never in polynomial time, never efficiently. But up until the early 90s, there were a series of improvements where we understood what the asymptotics were, uh, the growth in, in fact, in, in difficulty in factoring. And we actually haven't made any significant progress basically since the 90s, and we're kind of overdue for a factoring improvement. For the newer algorithms, it's this thing I, I, that I call bake time. How long has the algorithm been defined? How long have people been trying to attack it? And how successful have they been? And we gain confidence 
by having something out there that people are trying to attack and failing at. Um, so of the algorithms that are currently under consideration for standardization and the ones that have been picked already uh, in the first set of choices by NIST, um, you know, these are based on problems that have been studied for a fair amount of time, but have never gotten the amount of attention that say factoring and discrete logs and elliptic curves have just because they weren't in use. And so I think that's why a lot of us in industry feel like public trust is earned over time and um, that actually impacts your deployment times. Um, and one of the ongoing debates right now in the way in which we're gonna do this transition has to do with how do we deploy these post-quantum algorithms and have we gained enough trust to use them solely or do we feel like we need to combine them with something classical for a period of time? Um, so I guess the, the, the scientist to layman translation is the number theory problems that underlie some of these schemes can be more complicated. The implementations can be more complicated. Um, they haven't been studied by as many people for as long. And it's all of those things that combine into how, how much confidence we have in them. And, and just to give you a final point on this, we, we have breaks, things break. Um, most famously recently from the past summer, one of the four schemes that my former team at Microsoft was part of was a uh, scheme called Psych, uh, Super Singular Isogeny Key Encipherment. So that's a, that's a mouthful. Uh, but it was based on a hard problem in number theory that had to do with something called isogenies between elliptic curves. That's not important for our conversation. What's important is that that was a problem that was about 12 years old and that had been studied by a whole bunch of people and we all thought it was secure. And then last summer, uh, we had actually put a challenge prize out for Microsoft Research for a smaller instance, and two researchers in Europe uh, solved the challenge, broke the scheme completely because they went back and found a theoretical math result from the 90s in a completely different part of pure mathematics and were able to apply it to this problem. And that kind of breakthrough can happen in cryptography. And so that's why the trust that you have in an algorithm so much depends upon how much effort people have spent trying to break it and how much they brought to the table. We all thought it was a completely secure algorithm. We had implementations on it. NIST was looking at it, had selected it as a potential for standardization going forward. And then this result comes out of left field. and that's the name of the game in cryptography. Um, so we expect there to be um, a back and forth between cryptographic development and cryptanalysis and trying to break it. And that translates into your your the amount of trust you have. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's wild. Yeah, I imagine there's just going to be more and more of that happening, right? The more... Oh eyes that are on this the more people that are testing it and challenging these so yeah in some ways we actually got very lucky with that break because it happened um it happened actually at the point where we had the opportunity if we could patch it to patch it for the next round of the nist competition yeah. um it turned out it wasn't patchable but also before it got deployed i mean think about we're deploying a new algorithm you would much rather have researchers find faults in it 
before you've hit the deployment stage, then two years after deployment, you have to go back and retrofit everything. This mm-hmm. is why the amount of analysis that you have to have and how much trust you want to build up before you solely depend upon something is a lot. And why those of us in industry um, really favor gradual step-by-step deployment of something new, generally layering on top of old things that we have, you know, confidence in. Um, Almost like hedging your bets, right? It is hedging your bets. Um, uh, So there's a, there's a, debate right now along those lines, which is we're going to get a new scheme, uh, some new post-quantum standards coming out of NIST. And right now the NSA is saying that you should, they would like everyone to just transition and stop using RSA and elliptic curve and start using the new things solely. But those of us in industry are um, generally would like to be additive. Would like, because we know the classical resistance of RSA and elliptic curve, they don't give us any quantum computing resistance, but we understand the classical resistance. We all tend to favor taking those and combining those algorithms with the new post-quantum ones so that you get some quantum resistance from the new schemes. But if that new scheme happens to fail catastrophically, like what happened with Psyche, you've still got a fallback of classical resistance. You haven't put all your eggs in that one basket yet. Now, yeah. by the beginning of the next decade, maybe we'll have enough time that we'll start that transition. So really, we're not just looking at one transition here. We're possibly looking at two, one where we mm-hmm. add in post-quantum uh, to what we're currently using classically and one where we finally decide to turn the classical off. Mm-hmm. Certainly when, you know, there's the quantum computer when quantum computers are the equivalent of Mr. Fusion home energy centers from Back to the Future, and you go out and buy one and have it at home, and everybody has a quantum computer and everybody can factor, you won't do RSA anymore. Yeah. But until we get to that point, there's a having some backup kind of helps, you know, have it, having some layers. Yeah, it makes sense. It makes sense. And yeah, that'll be the day eh? when we'll be, be talking over a quantum computer. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Love to have one sitting next to my desktop PC. Oh, yeah. <laughs> are there any areas of PQ readiness engineering that you feel are not getting enough attention? Well, I, I fear that um, some large enterprises are still only starting to wake up to the amount of work that they have in front of them to do this transition. So now that we have some algorithms that have been picked by the U.S. government for standardization, and we're going to get more. In fact, we're going to get two more waves of selections from the U.S. government. Well, we have a first set. And that first set, now that work has transitioned into protocol standards at groups like the IETF, the Internet Engineering Task Force, and other standards groups that own the communication protocols for the Internet. So they now have to update and decide how they're going to integrate the post-quantum algorithms into there. But at the same time, what enterprises should be doing right now is inventorying all of their uses of public key cryptography today. And if they have their own proprietary protocols on the back end, they're going to own updates to that. Or if they're a member of a small community, like within a particular vertical that has a protocol that they maintain, they're going to have to own updating that themselves. And I think a lot of enterprises have put this problem up by saying, well, 
NIST isn't going to actually issue the formal standard till the end of 2024, and the IETF is going to take longer. We'll worry about this problem later. But it takes time. Um, to give you an example from the ECC transition from my time at Microsoft. So that transition really was kicked off by, as I said, by NSA's announcement in 2005. It took us three releases of Windows, um, Vista, Vista Service Pack 1 and Windows 7, over a four and a half year period from the time at which NSA made that announcement to when I would say we had really good baseline support for ECC in that operating system. And there are parts of the Windows ecosystem that are still trying to finish their transition to elliptic curve today. So if you're an enterprise and you're thinking about how do I move all of my stuff, you need to start thinking about that now and really start testing now. Uh, a key point that I emphasize to um, customers that I consult with is that these new algorithms are you pay for the you pay for the post quantum feature in uh, key size in ciphertext or digital signature size or in performance? None of them are as the beat RSA and elliptic curve on all those axes. Mm -hmm. So that means you got to start testing with the algorithms because you might find that parts of your ecosystem can't handle signatures that are significantly larger than the digital signatures today. Um, you could be handling lots of signatures on a smart card and find out you don't have the space on your smart card to store post quantum signatures or post quantum plus signatures. So the readiness that I think, you know, enterprises that are aware of the problem are starting to think about this, but they really need to start inventorying their code and their implementations and figure out whether they're going to be updating things themselves, whether their vendors are. And the other thing I tell enterprises is that if you are putting out a request for proposal today, if you are asking vendors to bid on a service, you definitely should be asking them if what their plans are to migrate and ship post quantum algorithms. And that's a fair question to any vendor at this point, and they ought to have a plan. And I wouldn't put out an RFP without having a requirement that the bids have PQC migration as part of the response. Mm. Yeah, no, I've, I I find it's uh, it's actually nice some of the the government action that's come into play recently. Yes. It sort of validates some of exactly what you were saying, right? There was that memo that that uh, told federal agencies that they have to inventory their cryptographic assets, the hardware and software. So, you know, again, just validating that that fact with others. So that that's absolutely true. What you're referring to, what's called National Security Memo Ten, uh, mm -hmm. which was an executive order that directed the agencies this was a this is actually a difference from what we saw with the ECC transition in 2005 in 2005 NSA basically said hey we want you all to move and that was kind of it well now what you have had for post quantum is not only that NSA statement in 2015 and the whole NIST competition that started in November 2017 but now the White House put out that national security memo it got followed up with actual bipartisan legislation from Congress that was signed in December. There's been follow on cybersecurity um, strategies that all reference post quantum. So you see a lot more um, government effort behind this and recognition that even for just the federal government in the United States, every agency is going to get impacted and there's going to have to be 
funding spent to update them. So that's right. It's absolutely true. And that communication is important. Um, I'll also highlight um, that in addition to NIST, there's a there's another activity that's the competition. There is something happening going on right now at the National Cybersecurity Center of Excellence, which is another piece in this, where they actually have a program with a number of partners uh, that we were part of when I was at Microsoft uh, to help develop some tools to aid companies, enterprises, folks in the transition, right? They're, they under, So the government also understands that they have to help seed the tooling um, mm -hmm. yeah, to help build um, you know, code scanning tools and things like that that can help spur companies to get started now on that inventory and identifying you know, and planning for their own transitions. Mm -hmm. Yep, the migration project, we're a part of that yes. one too. Yeah. Oh, excellent, yes. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so moving some of our focus of this discussion around standardization of PQC, we know that NIST has been running their competition, as we just mentioned, for quite some time now, and a lot of eyes are on that, waiting for the outcome. But we also know that NIST and the EU are looking at different algorithms. Can you get into that a little bit and maybe some of the pros and cons of that? Sure. Um, so uh, NIST launched their competition in 2017. Last summer, we got the first winners of that. Uh, they selected an encryption algorithm called Kyber, and they selected three digital signature algorithms called uh, Dilithium and Falcon and Sphinx Plus their names. We can go into why later. Um, they have also are now running a fourth round to pick some additional encryption algorithms. And they have opened a second call for additional signature algorithms, and that call closes June 1 and will probably run for my guess is three to four years. So we've gotten the first set of answers from NIST, but we don't have all the answers. We're going to get more algorithms. The first ones they intended to be generally good in most cases, but we're going to see some other ones that they're going to probably select. Um, at the same time, countries in Europe, in particular Germany and France and the Netherlands, had previously come out with um, statements about what they liked. These were from their agencies that are roughly equivalent to the NSA in the United States, BSI in Germany, ANSSI in France, and the Dutch NCSA. Um, and there were some other algorithms. Uh, one of them was one I was involved with called Frodochem. Uh, they liked another algorithm called Classic McLeese. Uh, Frodo did not advance to round four at NIST. McLeese is still possible standardization, but the Europeans um, liked these and expressed that fact. And now um, they have gone to ISO, the International Organization for Standardization, and are proposing encryption standards to take both the Kyber algorithm that NIST has proposed, as well as Frodo and Classic McLeese. Um, and, we're, and we were supporting that at Microsoft. And as far as I know, um, you know, the, the participants in the Frodo uh, standard are still doing that. I think what you're seeing here is, um, is a focus on use cases. So the intelligence agencies that were driving those requirements in Europe want very, very conservative, secure algorithms at the highest security levels. And they gravitated toward 
like our Frodo algorithm, which had many fewer um, sort of um, structural assumptions on it. Uh, we were extremely conservative in the design, but we paid a price on the performance for that. Um, and so they're looking from national security perspectives as they'd like to have some options. Uh, NIST has to balance for all the users across the US government in the United States, right? So they're trying to, to go on that. Uh, so I don't think it's a matter of the Europeans not trusting the NIST process. I think they are looking at wanting to have some additional options. And we all do want to get international standards out of this. Let me say that um, I think it would be a disaster if we got a fractured internet where the post-quantum standards varied based on which country you were in and you had to decrypt and re-encrypt on crossing borders and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, now, there are some countries that are doing their own thing. Uh, China ran its own post-quantum competition, picked its own algorithms. Um, they, you could only submit to that competition if you were a member of the Chinese Academy of Cryptologic Research. Um, and they may choose to keep their own national standards. They've done uh, things like that in the past. Uh, but I'm really hoping that, um, you know, NIST is sort of the gold standard for running independent, open, um, transparent competitions. And they gave us the AES symmetric encryption algorithm we all use. They gave us the SHA-3 hash algorithm, um, both of which were products of European researchers, by the way, um, that got selected for US standards. And you know what we really want to see for the post-quantum transition is a worldwide consensus. And I've long said to NIST, I said, it's great that you're going to have a national standard, but you have to commit to taking that to ISO which they which they have um you know they, they've always said that they plan to do that and i think the european government's going there and saying look we want to have this bundle of options is a good thing to kind of happen and as long as we don't have too many of them i think that's all right but it's it's a use case focus i think you have to look at the charters for each of those agencies mm -hmm. and what they're trying to do yeah fair enough so once these recommendations are ultimately made. Um, we're still not talking about mature algorithms like RSA or ECC that have been tested over time, or like you right. said, maybe had the sufficient bake time, which, right. <laughs> you know, love that term. Um, so how do you see PQC evolving or maturing in the future? Okay, so what, so the work now, the primary work is gonna move to the IETF, the Internet Engineering Task Force. This is the standards organization that defines things like, um, TLS, transport layer security. That's the security protocol underlying every HTTPS web connection and is the most widely used secure communication protocol on the internet. They also own the definition for digital certificates. So when you connect to a website and um, then you are authenticating the identity of the remote party, that's through a digital certificate that's digitally signed. The IETF defines those standards too. The work that has to happen there in those standards and many others that the IETF maintains for interoperability on the Internet is to transition those protocols to now add in and use post-quantum algorithms. Now, that happens in various working groups inside the IETF. Um, 
And so each of those working groups now independently has to take the algorithms. And sometimes there isn't a working group anymore because the protocol hasn't changed in so long. And so working groups may need to get spun up. But that's going to be the transition focus, right? Which is that the protocols that we depend upon every single day and that all of our devices, desktops, laptops, phones, Internet of Things, everything, ultimately depends upon these standards that are maintained by this volunteer organization. Um, and so they've got to go through the work of updating all those standards. And then everybody who implements those standards has to go through the work of updating uh, to the new standards. And that's going to take a bunch of time. The danger here um, is that each of the working groups is somewhat independent. And so, for example, if we because of the bake time question, Mm -hmm. everybody's going to add on post-quantum to the existing RSA and ECC initially. Well, you want to have, ideally, you'd like to do that the same way in each of those different working groups. You would like the way in which an encryption algorithms are combined together in the TLS, Transport Layer Security Working Group, is roughly the same mechanism that gets used in other encryption working groups, right? Such as IPsec um, and the digital signature groups should kind of focus on doing that the same way. Otherwise, you end up with implementers of operating systems, you know, for desktops, phones, what have you, having to implement different combination mechanisms for the same algorithms. And that's mm -hmm. a place where mistakes in standardization or flaws in combination or in the implementations can can creep in. So there is this coordination issue and that's just the IETF. There's other standards groups. If we're talking about future standards for vehicle to vehicle communication or you know how um, the other the IOT fields are going to update or when you start looking at things like Web3, blockchain technology, stuff like that, how they're going to migrate. Um, all of those, the organizations that maintain standards in those spaces have to do this, the, these updates. And there isn't a single central body to do the coordination among all of them. And even within a big or a big standards work like the IETF, there isn't really the coordination that happens among the working groups unless the people involved in those take the time and the effort to make sure that that happens. And so I think that's one of the big challenges is to make sure that um, things move forward on the same page in yeah, all of these standard places. We already know, you've talked about implementation a couple of times, we already know that there's gonna be some complexities, like no single al algorithm will fit all use cases. That's right. In fact, one of the issues with the digital signature algorithms is they're all significantly larger than RSA and ECC based signatures. Uh, at best, like the smallest increase is probably about a factor of three at the over RSA. So that means that if you have an infrastructure that's storing a lot of digitally signed documents, mm -hmm. you're going to have to plan a lot more space and storage for storing your digital signatures. Now, that may not be a big issue if you're signing things that are only going to have a 10 minute lifetime. But if you're signing documents and putting them in a long term archival storage for a long period of time and you want those signatures to be good for 20 or 30 years, you're going to be storing there's a lot more storage. Um, you know, one of the things that you worry about for like, you know, when when we were doing code signing, 
for an operating system and you're signing every dynamic link library, everything that's part of a distribution, well, all of a sudden, if you triple the size of the signature on every component of an operating system, that's a fair amount of storage. Or if you are, you know, signing a whole bunch of financial transactions happening over the wire, it increases bandwidth, it increases time. Um, so yeah, that's a, those are concerns. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So when it comes to organizations making the actual move to post-quantum cryptography, obviously the sense of urgency varies. Um, some should already be well underway with this transition, and some can wait until the day before a cryptographically relevant computer comes online. So can you comment a little bit on who should be feeling that greatest sense of urgency? Sure. I hope they don't wait right until the big quantum computer comes because we may not know because frankly yeah. one of the fundamental one of the interesting questions is are we actually going to know when our adversaries have like if they get there first and building a quantum computer you may not know oh when i find that such a fascinating idea right we might well, not know <laughs> you might not know right and so and i would get questions you know execs would say well brian how are we going to know so mm -hmm. so like so side tangent for just a second how are we going to know if somebody's got a quantum well if it's academia the public they're going to publish a paper on it and they'll probably win a whole bunch of prizes yeah. if it's organized crime they'll probably go after the bitcoins associated with satoshi nakamoto and take those and move them <laughs> you know because break those because they appear to be lost in a wallet somewhere um but that would be a nice thing to go after but if it's a nation state level adversary that builds it first they're going to try to keep that quiet Absolutely. In the same way that the Allies kept quiet their ability to break the German enigma in World War II, right, where they did everything they could to try to hide the fact that they had the ability to break that crypto system. If a, if a nation state level adversaries got a cryptographically relevant quantum computer, they're going to keep that quiet. So yeah. we may not know. OK, so now I'll come back to, well, so your question is, so what's the timeline? So given that, that you may not know. The real question is, if you're an enterprise, what's the security horizon of the data that you deal with that's sensitive? So you could be dealing with real-time stock quotes that maybe only have value for five or 10 minutes, or even less. Maybe it really has to be almost instantaneous. Um, that data has a very short lifetime, and I only have to defend against what my adversaries have available over the next, say, five or 10 minutes, right? Or I could be signing something that, by definition, that signature is good for a year or two years, and I have to know, I have to defend against what my adversary is going to have a year or two years down the road. Or I could be protecting medical health records where they have to be protected for the lifetime of the individual or I'm dealing with national security information that maybe has a 75 year horizon, where at the time at which I encrypt it, I have to defend against my future adversary and their capabilities up to 75 years down the road while that information still has sensitive value. Mm -hmm. So it really varies. So for an enterprise, what you have to start with is not only inventory your, your cryptographic algorithms and implementations that are going to, have to be updated, you have to inventory your data. Yeah. You have to understand the security sensitivity and the lifetime of the data that you deal with. And that's going to tell you what you have to prioritize in migrating. If you have some data that has a very long sensitivity period, that's what you're going to have to focus on first. And it's the cryptography algorithms and implementations that are used to protect that. Mm 
Um, the short, the stuff with a shorter horizon you can wait on, but it's that longer term sorts of things. And that varies by industry and vertical. Um, mm -hmm. The the other thing is we talk a lot about the encryption side of this, but the digital signature side is also really important because if an adversary, if you're using a classical algorithm to digitally sign updates, say to a hardware component or phones or software, if your adversary can break your signing key, your adversary can um, impersonate you and they can push malicious updates down and make it look like it came from the manufacturer. So manufacturers that own update mechanisms for like a billion devices around the world need to get the update mechanism and all those devices to migrate to new signature schemes that are resistant before the adversary can basically break a classical signing key and push malicious updates. Mm -hmm. So again, it also, so there's a risk component to this, which is how long's the transition gonna take for the type of information you're dealing with? Right. What's yeah. that ecosystem look like? So it if you're an enterprise, it's it's inventorying the data and understanding the sensitivity horizon of that data. And that's going to help you prioritize where to focus your efforts. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, yeah. Very cool. Yeah, no, and I think that's why government is taking action, right? Because Absolutely. they, and even with um, the Harvest Now decrypt later attacks that are you know known and exist yep. today, uh, definitely something for them to be thinking about. Absolutely. Yep. So before we wrap up, I'd love to hear from you. Any recommendations or takeaways you have for our listeners as they start to look at PQC and think about their own migrations? Um, sure. Well, first, um, I thank your listeners for listening to the podcast. And <laughs> if they didn't know about the PQC migration before, they, they sure do now. So oh, yeah. awareness <laughs> is really um, is key. Um, because even if you are not a cryptographer involved in the PQC migration or a cryptographic protocol standards person, this is going to impact everyone at mm -hmm. some degree, even if it's just awareness and be, knowing to ask the question, what are our PQC migration plans in our enterprise or are our vendors do our vendors have PQC migration plans and what are the timelines for that so we know about it, right? So awareness is the number one key here, right? Um, so that's the first takeaway. The second takeaway is that if you are, um, if you own cryptographic implementations or if you own portions of your enterprise that use cryptography that depend on for protecting sensitive data, start asking these questions now if you aren't and start planning out for the migration and asking your vendors that question too right that it is it is much easier to do these transitions if you can methodically plan them than to be in a hair on fire sort of situation where you have to move really kind of quickly and late um, and we've had a lot of heads up on this the nist standards are moving through the process. The protocol standards are moving through the process, but the time now, now that NIST has started to make, that has made their initial selections, there's plenty of open source software out there to start testing. So you can, within an enterprise, you can get code and test your infrastructure out. You can try things out. You can see how well your own custom components work. 
um, and that or whether you're going to have to put significant engineering effort into migrating some of your own systems. Um, the other thing is that if you end up owning critical infrastructure, um, I guess the other thing I would point out is there are cases where you may not have an opportunity to migrate your infrastructure so quickly. There are critical infrastructure components out there in the world where you only get a chance to update them every 10 or 15 years. Mm -hmm. And so you've got to make sure to hop on that bandwagon at the right time. And if you're not able to upgrade the implementation in a, in a component between some backend systems, you may have to look at actually wrapping some sort of an encrypted network tunnel or a VPN that does post quantum around an existing system that you can't update. You know, um, I like to use satellites as an example here. If you've launched a satellite a while back, you know, you're going to have to figure out what you can do with the, you can't go patch the satellite necessarily <laughs> that easily. Um, yeah. Or if you're designing, um, uh, you know, an aircraft engine or something that's got a 10 year design time and a 30 year lifetime in you know service lifetime you've got to be doing this now as part of the design process because it's not like you it's going to be easy to retrofit so awareness is key mm -hmm. making sure to ask the questions asking vendors you depend upon for cryptographic implementations their questions those are all yeah. the things to do right now awesome i love that i think that's a perfect takeaway and at that, um, I'd like to thank you so much for joining the podcast, for having this conversation. It's been a pleasure to have you. Well, thank you so much. Pleasure speaking with you today. Wonderful. And that's it for today's podcast. Keep up with new episodes by following us on LinkedIn and Twitter using the links in the episode description. 